Welcome back, Father Kevin, to the Thank weekly you. Bible podcast. We're here for the uh, 23rd Sunday in Ordinary Time, Cycle A. And we start off with one of the major prophets. Uh, we've been going through them, Ezekiel, um, chapter 33. What can you tell us about this? Well, you know, Ezekiel is very interesting. When we think of the major prophets, of course, Isaiah always comes to mind first, Jeremiah. We read from him just recently, but Ezekiel would be a strong candidate for number three, <clears throat> I would say. Um, and it's good to remember when he's writing, or, or at least the time when he lived, the writings may have come, you know, a little bit after that. But he's, he's living right before the exile into Babylon and right after it. Now, when we say the exile, usually we're saying 587 BC, but some of them began to be exiled before that. It was sort of like in waves. That was sort of like the final fall of Jerusalem. So he's living even in the 590s BC and then talking about that afterwards. The text we have today from chapter 33, you know, he basically says uh, the Lord is challenging him. You know, last Sunday we had Jeremiah saying, you know, I don't want to talk anymore. I don't want to suffer, but I can't hold it in. It is burning inside of me. Ezekiel is a similar but slightly different take in case we're tempted not to speak out. He, you know, the Lord says to him, I've appointed you as watchmen. He says for the whole house of Israel. So they're still including that northern kingdom, which is gone at this point, but they still refer to the whole uh, nation as the, in a sense, all of Israel, the 12 tribes. And he says that um, that he's supposed to warn uh, other people about their, their bad work, their, their, bad, uh, their bad deeds. And he's supposed to do that on behalf of the Lord. And he says, you know, if I want to say to the wicked, um, you're, you'll surely die because of your wickedness, but you don't speak out and try to dissuade, as they say here, the wicked from his sins. The wicked will die, but you're also going to be responsible. In fact, it's pretty strong language. I will hold you responsible for his death. And of course, then there's another option that he says you could speak out and still he could refuse to listen. And then, of course, he'll have the consequences, but you'll save yourself. So in other words, he's essentially saying the prophet is called to fulfill his mission, whether or not he sees results, whether or not people listen to him. And of course, the application for us is somewhat similar to last Sunday, that we, through our baptism and confirmation, are also prophets. You know, we share in the role that the role of prophecy of Jesus Christ. So a beautiful reading that we have from Jeremiah, um, and a, of course, an exhortation to us as well. Yep. So we get more or less the same message from last week, Jeremiah, and this week, Ezekiel, right? Um, Similarities, that, yes. That applies to us. Okay. So Psalm 95, right? This is, uh, isn't this the introductory psalm um, uh, uh, in the office? Um, right. If, yeah. I, I especially like this psalm, Psalm 95, because the church gives us uh, a possibility of four psalms that are called invitations to prayer, or they use the sort of unwieldy word in English, the invitatory. Um, and this is the most common of the four, the most uh, used one of the four, if you will. And it's speaking, you know, looking backwards of when the Jewish people had left slavery in Egypt. They're spending those 40 years in the desert and they keep on not trusting the Lord. So it's interesting that it says in that first stanza, let us acclaim the rock of our salvation. Well, it's also probably remembering a little bit the rock that had to be struck in order for water <laughs> to come out, you know, that Moses had to strike for them to drink. But, you know, it's, it's encouraging the people. Uh, probably at this point, the temple is already uh, built, right? So 
you know, we would assume that it's after the time of David. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord who made us. For he is our God. We are the people, his shepherds, and flocky guides. Maybe the temple hasn't been built yet, but it's certainly possible. They're already saying, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us joyfully sing psalms to him. So there's already, uh, you know, a corpus of psalms, if you will. But then we get to that last passage. Uh, and you always have that. It's, it's interesting to translate this from the Hebrew because it's sort of the... Um, the wish, you know, I can't think of the, the optative, I guess they would call it, but oh, that today you would hear his voice. You know, the old translation, would that today you would hear his voice, but a lot of people might not understand that phraseology today. Just in case, in a sense, it's saying the Lord is going to speak, but just in case maybe today out of the last hundred days, you actually hear him, right? That you're listening to him. Don't harden your hearts. Harden not your heart. Is it Meribah? Meribah, the, the word in Hebrew means quarrel or strife, is in the day of Masa. Masa in Hebrew means to test or to put to the test, to tempt. Uh, is in the day of Masa in the desert where your fathers tempted me. They tested me, though they'd seen my works. Again, applying this to us, the Jewish people have seen the 10 plagues. They've seen the, the final 10th plague, the striking down of the firstborn of animals and of human beings. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've had a manna from heaven provided for them. They've had water from the rock. They've had the, the quail sent to them as well, but they're still complaining. And of course, we always remember when we read their history, we're reading the story of our lives. You know, we're inserted into that salvation history. So at this point at Masa and Meribah, they were complaining. I think that was right around the time when they were complaining they didn't have any water. And as soon as they go through some suffering, they immediately begin to distrust God, or even accuse him of evil intent, right? And so th there seems to be a message in that whole uh, time of the Jewish people, the Israelites in the, in the desert for 40 years, that we're also going to go through suffering. We're going to go through our own desert. And, you know, none of us like to suffer, and we need to take refuge in God when we do. But we especially are uh, called to not ascribe evil intent to God. Just because we're suffering doesn't mean that God is bad. It's just he's allowing it, and we just simply don't understand the reason that perhaps that he's allowing that. Very good. So we get to uh, Romans. We continue going through Paul's letter to the Romans. This one is short, but really interesting, right? It's like his summation. Right. right. Very interesting. Yeah, so it's uh, Romans 13. We're not completely at the end. Romans goes up to chapter 16. But here he takes an interesting take on something, you know, the Lord had already said in the Sermon on the Mount that if someone asks you for something, give him that and more, right? Someone asks for the cloak on your back, give him that and your tunic. Someone asks you to go for one mile, go two miles, right? Uh, and give to the one who asks, right? Give, you know, the one who's asking to borrow. Well, now the tables are turned. Now he's basically saying to the early Christians, ideally, you're not supposed to get into debt. Ideally, you're not supposed to borrow. Now he says, Jesus is saying, if someone asks you to borrow, try to be generous, right? But ideally, we're supposed to be the persons who say, well, you know, I can live simply. I can live frugally. I don't really need this. I don't need to get into debt. And so then he, as he says that, owe nothing to anyone. Then he basically, you know, and remember, Paul was probably pacing back and forth and dictating, you know, many of these um, letters and there's they're a scribe and writing them down. It's probably them thinking, well, actually, there's one thing you can't owe. So it says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Basically saying, if you're going to owe a debt to anyone, the debt that you owe to others is that you're called to love them. And he's speaking about that early Christian community especially. 
And he finishes up then saying that the whole law can be summed up in loving your neighbor as yourself. And he says, love is the fulfillment of the law. And he says, that's why love does no evil to the neighbor, right? It, it reminds me to paraphrase St. Augustine, who said, uh, love and do what you will. Of course, now that can be misunderstood, but essentially what Augustine is saying is if you truly love and will the good of the other uh, and, and truly love God, you're going to instinctively choose what is right, you know, under the, the various circumstances of life. So very interesting what Paul says. Um, of course, in our, our modern society where we have our credit cards and our car loans and our house loans, it may be hard to literally live this out. But certainly the spirit behind it is, you know, as much as possible, try not to get into debt. You know, you see people that slide into all kinds of evils when they get into debt, right? That they, they then open themselves up to other things that are not going to be good. So Paul is just saying it's it's a good idea not to get into debt. Please try not to. But if you do want to think of owing anything, you owe love to your neighbor. It's an interesting take on it. It is. I, I agree. I agree. Uh, I'm going to see if I can't get rid of my mortgage. So right. we come we 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 come to a really interesting gospel reading though I in my mind one of the most interesting all these sayings are incredible two or three together um they, it shall be granted in my name there I am so tell us about these sayings of our lord in the 18th chapter of Matthew right so we're still in the the gospel year of Matthew and remember chapters 16 to 18 are especially looking at how do people live together in a community, not necessarily all living in the same building, but in this extended Christian community, the assembly, the early church. And so uh, remember, this is coming from a Jewish context. In a Jewish context, you weren't supposed to listen to just one person who made an accusation. And Deuteronomy says you need to have, I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 19, you have to have at least two, wit two witnesses, three is better, right? Basically it's saying two or three. And so here, with that backdrop, with that understanding, culturally as part of their um, their their belief system, their their way of living. The Lord then says to him, that says to all of them, if your brother sins against you, so it's talking about the community, first go talk to him privately. Go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And ideally, if he's mature and you're mature, then that's it. That's enough. Now, it takes an incredible maturity to accept that someone is going to come and tell us a defect, perceived or real. And it also takes a lot of maturity to do it in the right way. So it can be very easy for us to attack. It's, it can also be easy for us to be very defensive. So the Lord knows it's not always going to work. But that is the first best approach. Every once in a while, when I'll hear someone, you know, they, they've got a problem, and they immediately want to go to the person at the top. You know, and it, whenever it happens to me in my own parish, I always say, well, did you speak to so-and-so? There's actually two other levels that you should explore do you speak to the individual first right so it really comes back to that first now he says if he listens to you one over your brother if he doesn't take along one or two others with you and then he's quoting again from deuteronomy so that every fact may be established on the testimony of two to three witnesses so and and it, it especially we see that these days whenever i have to deliver bad news to someone especially if it's someone that you know i'm in some way supervising I almost always will say, you know, I need a witness because it's interesting when there's a conversation, it's very fascinating how two people can recall it in two very different ways, you know, what one said or what the other said. And of course, you know, for that reason, they sometimes even have recordings, you know, to make sure that there can be no ambiguity, no misunderstanding. But he continues and says, if he refuses to listen to them, go tell the assembly 
you know, of course the translation is church, but literally the word be, would be ecclesia, the, the, the assembly. It's going back to the understanding in Hebrew of kahal, the assembly being those who have been convoked, those who have been called together. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Now that's interesting for two reasons. Because in the early church, well, I mean, if we look at the Jewish people first, they would avoid Gentiles or tax collectors. And yet the Lord ate with tax collectors, right? He went into their homes and, and ate with sinners. So there's, it's an interesting thing. It's, it almost seems to be saying, in, in my opinion, that when someone is just a sinner without the knowledge, like they, they, we can't say that they should know better, we should be showing them mercy and forgiveness. You know, the Lord eating with the woman caught, uh, you know, the woman who was a, um, uh, had perceived to be a prostitute, right? Who washes his, his feet, right? At least that's what Simon says of her. But there seems to be a slightly different criteria when it's a brother or sister in the community who ought to know better. Once they have ruptured that, um, the vocation that the community has to be salt for the earth, to be light for the world, it talks a little bit about almost avoiding that person. You know, in the early church, they had the concept of excommunicating someone, but the word originally was excommunicatus et vitandus, which means excommunicated and to be avoided or should be avoided, right? Very different from the way we think today. The church at different moments in history has thought maybe it better to exercise authority more in that way. Certainly, we don't see too many people getting excommunicated in any formal way these days. You know, there's certain things the church says that you just automatically bring down an excommunication upon yourself if you do, like you know, procuring an abortion or helping in any way or performing an abortion, you know, would be you know one obvious example. But he goes on then and says, after he finishes that saying that, you know, there's a certain identifiable community. And when someone has ruptured that, there are consequences when he doesn't listen to the authority of the church. Now talking to all the apostles, he reiterates some of the things that he said two chapters earlier to Peter. And so he says now to the college, as we call it, the college of bishops is the group, the group of the apostles, the college of the apostles. I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven almost word for word the same, what he said individually to Peter. And that's why we have the understanding in Peter, certain authority, the successor of Peter, the Holy Father, is a certain authority on his own. He can exercise in an autonomous way. But then there's also gatherings of bishops. You know, most often we call them a council. And so the church also teaches in the Second Vatican Council that the bishops, uh, when they're in union with the Holy Father, are also... Uh, you know, prevented from teaching error and what we need to know for our faith and salvation and, and, and what we need to know um, in, in the faith and, and, and morals, right? basically what we believe and how we live. And then he shifts again. And, uh, you know, some people, again, the study scriptures say they believe that a lot of the sayings of Jesus that were remembered were collected together and sort of they tried to organize them into topics. So sometimes you do get like, sort of like one statement after another. He now says, amen, I say to you, if two of you on earth agree about anything for which to pray, it shall be granted to them by my heavenly Father. Basically emphasizing the importance of communitarian prayer. And when I hear anyone say, well, I can pray anywhere. Like, sure, do you? you know, I can go out to nature and pray. Do you actually spend an hour in meditation when you go walking? You might say, well, I am sort of kind of thinking, but there's a purpose. There's a reason why we come together with rub shoulders with fellow sinners and pray together because we need that. We need that to come together. The, 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 the uh, 
community, the collection of the imperfect, you know, this motley crew of people that, that we all come together. But then also finally, the Lord in a slightly different emphasis insists and when the final sentence, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And then we come back to the understanding that the church is the body of Christ, that in some way uh, that Jesus Christ is present in his church. And so, you know, he seems to be emphasizing that again. We come together to pray, to worship, certainly at Sunday Mass, not because we're perfect, but because we want to grow in, in love for God and for one another. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I always think that's an amazing last line, right? Um, right? That last line is incredible, right? To think that where we're gathered together with, with more than one of us, where two or three in, gathered in the name of Jesus, Jesus is there, right? We know Jesus is present in all sorts of ways, but to think that Jesus is there with you, is an, it must have been uh, a remarkable thing then as it is now. So. You know, you know. once I saw on a science show, sort of like in a Petri dish, they had individual cells of the heart, heart cells, and they were actually contracting as if they wanted to beat. And they were beating in a, two, a different rhythm. And then they were gradually put together till they touched. Then a couple of seconds, they started beating together. And I once heard a talk on that, just saying that that should be, in a sense, how it is when two members of the body of Christ come together. You know that there oh, ought to be that, there, you know there ought to be that unity that eventually or very quickly is achieved. That's a great way to end. Thanks so much, Father Kevin. I uh, will see you next week again. Thanks for your time as always. Thank you.